0: And so, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together this morning be found pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Imagine the scene, if you will. One of the angels walks up to Satan one day and says, well, it looks like you've lost your case against Job. You did everything you could to make him turn away from God, everything, and he's still hanging on. You've lost. When Satan grins and simply replies to the angel, not yet, I've saved my most effective strategy for last. What do you mean, says the angel, what more could you possibly do? You've destroyed all his property. You've ruined his reputation. You've killed his children. You've afflicted him with a hideous disease. You've turned his wife against him. What more could you possibly do to turn him away from God? And Satan smiles with pride and says, I'm sending a group of visitors from the church. I'll send him his friends. And they won't listen. They'll make speeches about suffering. They'll quote Bible verses out of context to him. They'll try and explain God to him. And if that doesn't make him lose his faith, nothing will. Some of you have had that experience, I can tell. Three friends come to visit our brother Job. The Bible calls them friends and I think they meant to act like friends. I genuinely do. And they arrive intending to ease his pain, but in the process they make his pain even more unbearable. Job calls them worthless physicians, miserable comforters. He tells them, your platitudes are as worthless as ashes. And God has a word for these friends too. In the end, God speaks to them and says, I'm angry with you because you have not spoken about me accurately as my friend Job has. Do you remember the names of Job's friends there in the book? We have Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and Dave. Okay, well, maybe not, but perhaps we should all allow for the possibility That one of those names could have been ours. I'm quite sure one of them could have been mine. I know that at one time or another I've been one of those well meaning friends. And you know, they weren't so bad at the beginning. In fact, there are a few things that we could learn from Job's friends. It's not all wrong. Because at the beginning of the story, they heard a friend was in trouble and they immediately got up to go and be with him. They went. They showed up. Friends, never underestimate the power of your presence. One of the testimonies that so many of us will tell about times when we were in pain and when we were hurting is how everybody disappears. Job's friends showed up. And when they got there, they actually stepped into his grief with him. They cried with him. They tore their own clothes. They covered their own heads in ashes. They gave the gift of empathy. And during those first seven days, when Job was too stunned to be able to speak, they gave him, at least for a little while, the caring gift of their silence. They were wise enough to keep their mouths closed. Your presence, your empathy, your caring silence. Besides your prayers, friends, there are no better gifts to give than someone who is suffering. And so Job's friends begin well enough. But then things go downhill when Job ends his silence and finally starts talking. He does exactly what the scripture encourages us to do. Uh, We explored this last week in the story. He opens his mouth and out it all comes. And as often happens with hurting people when we are in places of pain, what comes out of Job's mouth is pretty hard to listen to. If you remember from last week, Job wishes out loud that he'd never been born. He curses the day he was born. He accuses God. Job asks bitter questions and his friends just can't deal with this level of anger and bitterness and pain. And so their focus shifts from Job and what he's feeling and their focus becomes their own sense of uneasiness. Then they do to Job what we often do to people who make us feel uncomfortable. They start trying to change him. They start trying to fix him. They begin gently. Eliphaz says, Job, Job, in the past you've been such an encourager to us and so many others. Your words have supported the hurting, but now when it comes to you, you've lost heart. Job, it's a blessing when God comes in and corrects you. Now, he doesn't say directly here that Job is guilty, but he definitely implies it, that Job has somehow... Bought this on himself. Bildad is up next. He has a turn at trying to explain what's going on. Can you believe what he says to his friend? He says, does God Almighty ever get anything wrong and get anything backwards? It's plain, Job. Your children must have sinned against God or else why would God have punished them? That's awful. But Zophar is the most toxic of all. He accuses Job of mocking God and he says to him, you know what, you haven't got half of what you really deserve if that's what you think. And after every one of these awful lectures, and I've pressed those for you this morning, they go on for some time if you've attempted to read through the book. After every one of these awful lectures, Job tried to answer them by saying, this isn't about my guilt. And he keeps weeping and crying out his questions. And every time he does, another one of his friends takes a shot. They describe for him in detail what God will do to wicked people and people like him who dare to rant and rave. They try to scare Job into repentance. But Job isn't falling for it. Thank God. And when he sticks to his guns... They then become really abusive. They even start making things up about him. It's awful. Incidentally, just after Eliphaz launches an especially vicious attack, this is in chapter 22 if you're looking to read it, Job speaks those tortured words we heard last week. If only I knew where to find God. I go to the east, that's east, and God is hidden from me. I go west, but I can't see him you see the connection? When friends abandon a hurting person, a hurting person can feel abandoned by God all the more. As theologian James Cone points out, it's the loss of community that constitutes often the major burden. He says suffering is not too much to bear if there are sisters and brothers who sit down in the valley to pray with you. When friends are faithful and they show up and they listen and they love, it's not unusual to hear a hurting person say, I looked for God and, you know, I found God in your care for me. And there's a way of listening to other people, really listening, that relieves some of the burden. And there's something important, I think, in that for those of us here who want to walk with people who are hurting. We can not only feel with people, sometimes we even carry something of those feelings for them, at least for part of their journey. There's a kind of listening that goes on to people in pain that doesn't interrupt, that doesn't say how good things will be soon, that definitely doesn't give advice. It's the kind of listening that takes in what is being said and soaks it in. And somehow bears some of it away. The chief mistake that Job's friends make is the same basic mistake that we often make with hurting people. And it's the mistake of starting in the wrong place. Read the speeches of Job in the Bible and you'll notice that Job always begins with what he is experiencing and then from there, he tries to draw connections between his experience and the broader concepts and principles at work in the world. And that is the right way round. But what his friends do is not to start with the suffering of their friend, but their starting point is their preconceived ideas and concepts and theologies. So when Job's behavior, And what Job is saying doesn't fit the conclusions that they've already decided they want to have about this is how things should be in this life. Instead of helping him, they bully him and they accuse him of being wrong. So here's a little nugget of wisdom from the story of Job and his friends for those of us who want to give good care to people in pain. Don't start from above them. Start from beside them, from where they are. Don't bring in your already finished and framed picture of the way things are to explain the meaning of your friend's experience. Don't start from above them. Go and sit beside them. The story of Job urges us to correct people less and to love people more. And in the process, maybe even find the humility to revise our pictures a little bit. Because, as I know, some of you have experienced, people say some very unhelpful things to people in pain. And sometimes they don't even mean those things, but they're so desperate to break the silence that they want to say something And you can almost hear the words coming out of your own mouth. Maybe it's just me. And you think, I'm not even sure I really think that or I meant to say that, but I just couldn't sit with the silence anymore. Some people do mean it when they say things like, whatever happens is God's will and it's ours to accept it. Have you remembered to give thanks and praise to God in the midst of your suffering? I have some very choice words to say when people offer me that one. You mustn't let this defeat you. You must claim your victory. God must have known that you were strong enough to endure this. Now, some of the answers we get given might have some genuine truth within them. Every one of those lines I just offered you is based at least in some part on truth. And if you read the speeches of Job, you can find yourself saying, well, you know, that part is kind of true. In fact, at the speech of God at the very end, it can sound a little bit like God saying some things that are not dissimilar to Job's friends. And so what do we do with that? What does that mean for us? Well, you know, friends, I think what it means, at least in part, is that sometimes a word is wrong, not because it isn't true, but because it isn't time. It's not the right time to speak that word. Well, the word is not at the wrong time, but is spoken by the wrong person or in the wrong way. Some of us are just so eager to express the truth that we feel that we have, that we never listen to God's Spirit saying, no, no, not now. They don't need to hear that at this moment. They don't need to hear that in that way. They don't need to hear that now. Friends, that's a word of God and a movement of the spirit we would do well to avail ourselves of more often than we do. So all that being said, how do we then help people who are in trouble, whose lives are hurting, and we want to be good friends to them? How can we care for them well? Well, Job makes a few suggestions. Job advises in the first instance that we should try saying Less, Oh, that you would keep silent, Job says to his friends. That would be your wisdom. And then he says, try seeing more and try hearing more. In chapter six, he says, turn around and look at me. And then later on, he says, hear my reasoning. Listen to the pleading of my lips. How many hurting people around us are trying to say, look at me. Listen to what I am telling you. And then Job says, don't set yourself above me, but come and sit beside me. And then he spells out just how to do that. He says, you dare to speak to me for God? In other words, are you taking the place of God for me? I don't need you to do that. Rather than uh, speaking uh, for God, why don't you speak for me to God? Don't become God become a friend who speaks and pleads on my behalf. I don't know. I read this story from Job, and I think Job's friends were trying to be faithful to him, but in the end, not so much. And God told them so. God tells them that their answers are more false than Job's questions. God says to them, you go fall on your knees, you go offer sacrifices on your own behalf... And then go to my friend Job and he will pray for you. And I will accept his prayer. And he'll ask me not to treat you as you deserve for talking such nonsense about me and not being as honest about me as he has been. I think that's all pretty good wisdom from our brother Job. It's wisdom we do well to take to heart. If we've been unfaithful friends, and who among us at some point, hasn't. If we've been unfaithful friends to someone who is in real need of our companionship, if we haven't listened, if we've spoken too much too soon, if we've set ourselves above them rather than sat beside them, maybe it would do us good. And maybe it's the command of God to go to them and ask them to pray for us. Friends, the good news this morning is that there is someone who answers prayers like that. There is someone who and all our other friends are condemning and shallow and absent. And when we have been condemning and shallow and absent, there is one who stands beside and sits with and never abandons. This is the friend we can turn to with repentant hearts when we have not been as we should have been. He's the kind of friend who is likely to answer, I don't condemn you, just go your way and sin no more. And for any of us here this morning who are hurting, and I suspect there aren't many of us who don't know what it's like to at least on some level suffer unjustly, there is no better friend. He comes to be with us, he comes to hear and to hold and to listen and to love sisters and brothers may we accept his friendship and may we then in turn offer it to those around us let's pray gracious God who never abandons would you bring us now to Christ and would you help us to see and to feel his faithfulness And in that, would you help us to be more faithful to those who need his friendship and care? We bless, we thank you for the love that does not let us go. And that teaches us to give and then keep on giving your gift of love to those around us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.